Lily Flag Signal, Episode 17, The Man with the X-Shaped House, Part 2. Welcome back to Part 2 of 2 on the life, home, and legacy of Dr. William Henry Britt. Before we get too far into things, I want to warn you that this is one of those two-part episodes where Part 1 definitely needs to come before Part 2 if you want the full context of what's going on. Today I'm picking up where that last episode left off, which, spoiler, was the destruction of William's first mansion by fire. As he stood and watched, helpless due to a lack of water sufficient enough to put out the burning bales of hay stuffed into the walls, William said he would not rebuild. This episode is a story of learning from, and embracing, mistakes, as well as a classic tale of a divorced man buying a cool car and the saga of our city getting its first museum. Before I get started though, I want to give a huge thanks to We Are Huntsville for sponsoring this season of the show. They're a great resource for finding events going on around town, guides to local shopping and restaurants, and all sorts of blog posts with useful information on things to do in Huntsville. Check them out at We Are Huntsville on social media or at their website, wearehuntsville.com. Also, big thanks to Barrett on the Mountain for all their cooperation and support while I researched this episode up at the museum. And now for the conclusion of Barrett's story, as well as the conclusion of season two of this podcast. Welcome to Lily Flag Signal, a Huntsville, Alabama history podcast where we love a good comeback story, especially if it results in a cool museum. In the moment, as the fire was burning down around his mansion in front of him, he said he wouldn't rebuild. However, William Burt was no quitter, and the community was supportive of his trying again at the house. Public sentiment was strongly in his support from what I could read, and since he intended the house to be a prototype of his design ideas to show off to said public, this was enough to convince him to try it again, despite insurance covering only a small fraction of what he spent on the first house. The construction team rebuilt the home on top of the same foundation, this time with a few changes, and it's this house that you'll see if you visit Britt on the Mountain today. First, they needed to handle the water access issue, since that's one of the things that made it impossible to save the first home. By the time the second home was completed, there were three wells on the property, as well as, pun intended, a 2,500-gallon tank. In a sharing-is-caring sort of moment, Britt let forestry employees use this water tower to spot forest fires, and they managed to spot and put out at least 10 in the area just while the house was being built. The major modification to the home itself was the fireproofing, of course. Asbestos, steel, and concrete were used in favor of wood for the structural elements. And before you start freaking out about asbestos, don't. Fun fact, if it's intact, the best thing to do is leave it intact. So like, if it's in good condition, the way the Burt Mansion is, and not spreading little asbestos fibers everywhere, you're fine. Go see the house. William Burt was really dedicated to the straw insulation idea, though, and he was not about to drop that part of the plan just because it, you know, kind of led to the complete destruction of the first house. Instead, he used science. He had the straw all coated in chemicals such that it would be flame resistant, dried it out so that it wouldn't mildew, and then stuffed that into the walls. Whatever they coated that straw with to build the second house, it was good stuff. There's a panel cut out of the walls where you can see the straw in the museum today, perfectly intact, and one of the Barrett Museum docents told me it's good for keeping insects out. He said in the decade he's been working there, he's never once seen a bug inside the mansion. Another more aesthetic change was the addition of a balcony on the second floor, which to me implies William went into that first house, said, man, I wish I'd thought to ask for a balcony, and then in the redo, got to have one. And now it's time to introduce another character to the story, Alta Florence Jacks. Born in 1891, and thus approximately 22 years younger than William Barrett, Alta had previously been married to her cousin, a man named Bill Jacks, so her first husband's name was also William, who was 15-ish years her senior. 
And when Bill Jacks died in Arkansas in 1920, Alta became involved in the Huntsville community. She was a member of the Business and Professional Women's Club and became a stenographer for the Huntsville Daily Times, later the Huntsville Times. And if you're interested in the history of that newspaper, I've got an episode on it called Sign of the Times. But anyhow, I'm not 100% sure how they met, but Alta and William Barrett were married in a Baptist parsonage in Lincoln, Tennessee in May of 1937. For their honeymoon, they went with George Walter, the engineer who was managing the construction of Mansion No. 2 for William Britt, and his wife out to St. Louis. As Walter's daughter later recalled, the two couples were there to pick out mantles from Britt's mansion there to bring back to Huntsville. And I love how thrifty that is, a multi-purpose honeymoon to repurpose architectural elements. Though I have to wonder how Alta felt about celebrating her marriage by going to her new husband's former wife's home to get decorative items for their new home. The mantles were beautiful, though, as were the rest of the fireplace designs. And there isn't a lot else written about William and Alta's time together. Alas, again, there are no diaries like Pearl, his first wife, had. But the marriage ended after nearly six years. Alta filed for divorce in April of 1943, citing cruelty. After their divorce, Alta actually kept such a low profile that when William Britt passed away in 1955, the Huntsville Times mistakenly reported her as being deceased. She was not, and she outlived him by over a decade. So, by the time of the divorce, William's second mansion had been completed. There are some bizarre, intriguing, unique features in it that may or may not have been in the first home that I've seen in the second house and I want to talk about. Design-wise, there's a really interesting mixture of Victorian elements like the mantles from that St. Louis house and parts of a stairway from the Burritt house downtown that William had grown up in, as well as Art Deco designs in the trim and the wood accents. It's like the antithesis of the modern 2023 trend of people picking a single aesthetic like hashtag minimalism or cottage core or, or what have you, because the entire house is essentially William Burritt saying, my aesthetic is whatever I think looks cool. The theme is me. And I love it. We know he had at least one of the rooms, the living room, painted pink and pastel blue, so he was also all about some colors. And fine, I'll just say it. This is Loki, my dream house. And the reuse didn't stop with the Victorian stuff William got from the other houses, though, as parts of the original burned house were kept, like the stones from the fireplaces, and recycled into the second house. Only one of the four fireplace designs over the mantles and the home's X-shaped wings is still intact, unfortunately, but I've seen pictures of the other fireplaces, and all were really interesting looking. The large slabs of stone, and when I say large, I mean these were sometimes three or four feet long, were arranged vertically and set onto the wall. So like, instead of having stacked stones on the inside over the mantle, there were huge slabs of rock attached to the plaster in decorative patterns. One of these, which has since fallen apart, was actually designed to look like candles with little flames. The art decoy wood accents on the living room walls also had little pointed flame-like designs. And seeing as how the first mansion, you know, burned to the ground, I thought that was quite a design choice. Now, another thing with the house, the closets were tiny. I've lived in and visited multiple historic houses and can attest that the original closets, if there were any, are often quite narrow and can only fit a few garments across, but that's not what I mean here. The Burritt Mansion closets are shallow, so much so that a common clothes hanger won't fit in them if you hang a pole in them. According to Jean Gentry, the daughter of William Britt's engineer, they simply made the closets the same depth as the hay bales. The theory is that the Brits just used separate wardrobe furniture. Since all the walls are as thick as a hay bale, this also means the windowsills are deep, like perfect for a cat to curl up in and nap in the sun, though I don't know that William ever had a cat, but I have found record of him having dogs. Another, excuse me, what, thing about the mansion is that the showers are in the basement. There are toilets in the main living space, but if you wanted to bathe yourself, 
down the steep stairs into the shower in the basement you'd go. There were no bathtubs at all in the mansion either, just these basement showers, and by all accounts, it wasn't heated down there. Given how fancy and display-like the home was designed to be, it's interesting that William's daily life and the more hidden parts of the house were so plain and unfancy. Speaking of, I guess I talk about the basement now. It's pretty utilitarian, with the stone foundation that was also part of the first house visible along with the earth on which the home is built. There are three sets of stairs leading into the basement, one from each wing except the living room. According to a Huntsville Times article written after William's death when the city was obtaining the home, only one of the showers was ever connected to water, and even then, it was only to the cold water. That same article said that the wood stoves and fireplaces were used for heating rather than more modern methods, and I've read recollections where people who visited the house when William was still alive said that it was quite chilly. As someone who tries to go as long as possible without turning the heater AC on in my own house, I respect that a lot. One last thing about the mansion that baffles people at first glance is the juxtaposition of the year inscribed over the door, 1935, with the museum sign directly by the front entrance that says Britt Mansion 1938. Because 1935 is the year construction started on the mansion, the one that was destroyed by fire, it seems William wanted to keep a sort of homage to that by putting that number over the door, while the museum of course labels the home with the year it was completed, as is pretty standard in signage for old buildings. And I realize this doesn't sound particularly exciting, but it's one of the things people have asked me about, and I figured I'd include it. Now, if you're going to be a bachelor in a fancy mansion on a mountain in the outskirts of town, you sort of have to have a cool car, and William Burritt understood the assignment. He talked with the dealership downtown in 1949, a little over a decade after the house's completion and six years post-divorce, and special ordered a right-side drive DeSoto Coupe. According to an interview with Mary-Kate DeYoung, an accountant at the dealership at the time, William's reason for wanting right-side drive was so that, in heavy fog when he maybe couldn't tell where the center of the road was on the left, he could see the edge of the road when going up and down the mountain. If he could see the edge and stay the correct distance from it, then the other side of the car would inherently be where it belonged in the middle of the road. Seems legit. She also described his joy at buying a new car and said, quote, Truly the boyish, gleeful personality came out. It was a pleasure to see him so excited about getting a new toy. End quote. Since this was a special order car anyway, William got to choose the color. His first reaction on being asked what color to choose was to ask back what colors no one else in town had gotten. The rarest, with only a single sedan in town in the color, was seafoam green. So, he got seafoam green. And if you remember the Virginia McCormick episode, she also chose green as the color for her custom order carriage that was shipped to Huntsville years earlier. So, I appreciate the unintentional theme here of podcast episode subjects having green-colored transportation. And if you're wondering, DeYoung estimated that the car cost around $2,100 at the time, which is approximately $26,000 in 2023 money. For a custom car, that's not bad at all. Even after the divorce, William Britt wasn't completely alone or isolated, despite the location of his home. In addition to the social activities in which William was involved, and probably driving to in that DeSoto, people headed up to Montesano State Park, or those who were simply curious about the house, would drive up the mansion's driveway on occasions. There are numerous photos of him with strangers at the house who had simply stopped by and been greeted with a tour. He was, of course, still very proud of the mansion. I want to also mention that William Burt wasn't alone on Round Top either. Marvin Tippett, his chauffeur, lived on the mountain with his family, including wife Vera, in a separate home that was also owned by William. I don't know what point exactly William went from driving himself to having a chauffeur, but the 1949 DeSoto he custom ordered was definitely intended for him to drive himself. May Powell was William's housekeeper for years too, and the northeastern part of the X in the mansion was her living area as well as the home's kitchen. 
There's an exterior door on this side as well, so she could come and go as she pleased without having to go in the main mansion. This is the section of the house that's now administrative, with museum offices and storage. In addition to taking care of the home, Miss Powell traveled with William on at least one occasion, all the way to San Francisco for a farming convention. Yes, farming. Britt had a lot of hobbies, and one of them he picked up later in life was raising livestock, including ducks and goats. William Britt passed away on April 17, 1955, with the Huntsville Times noting that, quote, Dr. Britt, long one of the city's most colorful figures, had been in poor health for several months, end quote. If you're looking at the timestamp on this podcast, though, you'll notice that we're not quite at the end of the episode yet. And that's because Barrett's story, impact, and status as one of the city's most colorful figures didn't at all end with his death. William racked up quite a bit of notoriety for his interesting home and lifestyle, and much of that carries over in today. Like, when I put out a call for questions for the first listener request episode, he was the single most asked about topic. Some of the questions were weird, since the eccentricity seems to have resulted in long-lasting rumors about his life, and I want to address some of those, including his internment. William Britt was cremated, and it is said that his original wishes were that his ashes be placed in the archway through which one has to drive to get up to the mountain. If you look at old photos, you can see that there was a rather intricate archway with an urn on top over the driveway in the property, and then this was underneath a larger cement structure with columns on each side and Britt Hill engraved across it. The outer bit of the structure, including the Britt Hill engraving, still stands. Museum guests drive under it on the way up to the mountain every day. However, the inner archway that included this urn was hit by a vehicle decades ago and removed, so it's probably for the better that his remains were instead placed in the family's mausoleum at Maple Hill Cemetery. As a sort of side note, American vehicles are getting larger, like SUVs and pickup trucks nowadays are monstrously wide compared to the average vehicle driven in Barrett's time. Like, a 2023 Ford F-150 is about a foot and a half wider than Barrett's 49 DeSoto. And I'm curious how long it will be before that becomes more of a problem with the rest of the driveway, entryway, or just the roads in general. But anyhow, the other legend I got asked about and want to address is that in Barrett's family mausoleum, which has multiple spaces in it, his urn is on the floor. That's been true, as I've been told by a reputable source, but not for any nefarious reason or lack of space. Side note, I feel weird spending this much time on the subject of Brit's interment, but also I want to fight the rumors with facts, so here we are. I sort of hate that of all the strange and interesting stuff Brit definitely did do in his life, it was getting overshadowed by a drama about his final resting place, so let's clear that up. Long story short, from what I've been told, is that it's a really weirdly designed mausoleum. The door swings inward, but apparently the door blocks access to some of the crypts, so like, you can't access some of them unless you shut the door behind you and then maneuver things in a dark mausoleum, so that's a nope. William Britt's parents, as well as his first wife Pearl, are also interred there, so when William passed away, the most easily accessible slots were already in use, and so its odd architecture, not a lack of space, that led to his urn placement. Strange building designs strike again, it seems, though as a disclaimer, I want to point out that I personally have not been in the Brit Mausoleum, and I'm getting this description on the inside secondhand. But you wouldn't believe how many DMs I've gotten about this mausoleum, though. Anyway, now that that's out of the way. Firstly, despite living in a somewhat isolated area, what with the cliffside driveway and all, William had a number of friends, with over a dozen honorary pallbearers, including some members of the vestry from the Church of the Nativity. And now for the will, which is pretty important since it's literally why the Barrett on the Mountain Museum exists. First though, some money was set aside for cousins, friends, the Tippets, who also got the home they'd been living in, as well as a $300 monthly stipend from May Powell. Then came the money for charities. William also left $15,000 to the aforementioned Church of the Nativity, 
and 10000 each to the Huntsville Hospital and the Madison County Board of Health. This wasn't his first act of charity for public health purposes, as in 1949 he donated his old house on Eustis to be used as a clinic. And then there's the mansion itself. This was left to the city of Huntsville to be, quote, used by the governing body of said city as a park and museum, end quote, with the stipulation that the majority of the 10-person committee in charge of its operation be, quote, comprised of women who are interested in garden clubs and or the beautification of the city of Huntsville, end quote. Like, the city ordinance that originally established the museum had a version of this written into it at Barrett's request. To give you some context regarding the timing of all this, the city council officially accepted the offer from Barrett's will in May of 1955. The other major topics at the meeting were the choosing of a name for the parkway, they landed on Memorial Parkway, the name it still holds today, and discussions on building city-owned segregated swimming pools. As part of the preparations to turn the home into a museum, the city assigned G.C. McLaughlin, a Huntsville police officer, as a caretaker for the property during the transition. McLaughlin and his family actually moved into the Barrett Mansion for this task, since he was also there to guard the property. And it's at this point I will again mention that the only option for bathing in the house was the cold basement shower. So there was some construction that had to be done before the museum could be open to the public, including digging another well, doing minor repairs to the home, and getting another bathroom added. In the continuing saga of water being an issue up there, they ended up installing a water line going from the city's main up to a tank on the museum grounds. The updates on these changes were pretty trackable through newspapers at the time, since it was a city-run project and details were public, but of course the opening date originally listed was a little too optimistic. In February of 1956, they were saying, spring of this year, while calling for donations of items. Quote, a request was issued for local citizens to make available to the committee any museum items they would like to have displayed at the Barrett home. End quote. I've been told that the city sold a lot of Dr. Barrett's possessions in these early days, including some furniture and knickknacks, though I couldn't find any documentation on how much money was made from this. Pieces from his mansion still pop up every now and then, with items being recognized from old photos and then sometimes returned to the museum. They also sold the dairy goats that had been living on the property. There were over a dozen of them, and it took months for the city to sell them all. There were also pheasants and a few other animals, because of course Brit had livestock up there. The Modern Museum honors this tradition a bit, as there are currently barnyard buddies you can visit at Brit on the mountain, including pigs, chickens, goats, and more. Despite the delays, the museum did of course open, but not for over a year after that optimistic spring 1956 prediction. The official grand opening of the museum, which at the time was just the mansion and surrounding land without the other structures we know today, to the public took place October 27, 1957, two and a half years after William Britt's passing, with an estimated 700 people visiting in the four hours it was open on its first day. There were displays on William Britt's life, some of his antiques, paintings from local artists including Howard Whedon and Annie Clopton, both of whom were interesting and the latter of whom painted her art on cobwebs, and some archaeological artifacts. This was the city's first museum, and it sort of feels like it became a catch-all for interesting stuff at first. In the same newspaper article in which the opening was announced, the city also announced that the museum wouldn't have a regular opening or touring schedule throughout fall and winter, quote, due to a lack of a heating system, end quote. You know how I said people who visited the home when Britt was still living there recalled it being chilly? It appears that, despite all his wealth, he never got around to finishing setting up and turning on the mansion's heat, like, at all. I feel like this anecdote is a good one to leave off on, as it encompasses the impression I got of Dr. William Britt. Willing to go big when it meant showing off with his custom mansion and custom car, yet thrifty, dare I say cheap, when it came to other matters in his own life, like cold basement showers and a lack of central heat. 
So thanks for listening, and I hope you've been inspired to visit Brit on the Mountain in person and see some of the places and things I've discussed. I definitely encourage you to go see it for yourself, learn even more, and marvel at the eccentric life and home of Dr. William Henry Britt. As I mentioned previously, in addition to the mansion, the museum now has multiple relocated log cabins showcasing different eras of 1800s and early 1900s life in North Alabama. The Barnyard Buddies, folk arts classes, hiking, there's, there's a lot. Thank you again to Bird on the Mountain, and particularly Stephanie Timberlake, for all the research assistance and just generally being great to work with. And thank you as well to We Are Huntsville for their sponsorship of this and so many other Lily Flag Signal episodes. Check them out at wearehuntsville.com or on social media at We Are Huntsville for the latest local happenings. Also, also, a huge thanks to the Patreon supporters, including Allison and Jennifer, for their membership. If you want to hear your name listed here in the only Huntsville history podcast named for a cow, you can join them and other patrons over at patreon.com slash lilyflagpodcast. And of course, you can find more Lily Flag Signal content on Instagram and Facebook at lilyflagpodcast. That's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G podcast, two G's in flag. And get show transcripts with citations from lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com. And thus ends season two. I'll still be active online with near daily updates and research findings and silly bovine puns, but it'll be a few weeks before any new episodes come out. So until season three, and you'd butter believe there will be a season three, go pet some goats, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you later. Welcome back to part two of two. Uh, th- 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 two. It's like the antithesis, antithesis. Oh gosh. Some of the questions were weird since this eccentric eccentric eccentricity